everyone welcome to talking research i am asmita and this is a podcast that features in-depth interviews with prominent academics and researchers who study sexual violence across its different manifestations this conversation features an in-depth discussion of sexual violence both in specific cases and more generally if this is something that you find disturbing Please feel free to stop listening at any point. Today's guest is Dr. Anna Bull. Anna is a senior lecturer in sociology at the University of Portsmouth and she's also the co-founder of the 1752 group, which is a research and lobby organization that's working to address sexual misconduct and sexual harassment perpetrated by staff in higher education. So her research interests include class and gender inequalities in classical music education and also staff sexual misconduct in higher education which is what we're going to be talking about today higher education if you're not already familiar is education that's beyond the secondary level so you know your undergraduate degree and beyond and it's in an academic setting and we're going to be talking about sexual misconduct that's perpetrated by staff members in that setting today is anything else that you'd like to hear about or any feedback you have about this episode or any other episode of the podcast in general please feel free to reach out the email address and the social media handles are all in the podcast description and along with that if you need there are links to organizations that support survivors of sexual violence so please feel free to use those as well but that's everything from me so let's dive in Hi Anna, thank you so much for joining me and welcome to Talking Research. I'm really excited for our conversation. How are you today? I'm great, thank you. How are you? I'm good too. I'm good too. It's really nice weather here today, so uh it's a great podcasting mood. <laughs> so, <laughs> to start, uh tell us about yourself. How would you introduce yourself in a way that you like to be introduced? So, my name is Anna Bull and I'm currently a senior lecturer in sociology at the University of Portsmouth. and I'm also one of the directors of the 1752 group which is a research and campaigning organization working on staff sexual misconduct in higher education and I guess I'll say a bit more about that later on so how did you get into researching sexual violence i mean is this something that you've always been interested in or something that you discovered along the way yeah um so i've always been um involved in feminism and done a fair amount of feminist activism Um and my PhD research was actually in relation to my previous uh previous career which was as a classical musician wow. and I was looking at class and gender inequalities in classical music but during that I was involved in feminist activism and sexual violence activism kind of you know on the side um and so I was involved in voluntary work with rape crisis um and other forms of activism um and then how I actually got into this topic was that during my PhD at Goldsmiths um i got um, you know a group of friends i was involved with were um make, attempting to make complaints to the institution about sexual misconduct um in their department that was carried out by staff mm. and i saw what they went through and eventually i decided to join the fight myself mm. so i started as an activist um um and then we needed research in order to kind of make the case and so i've turned my sociological lens and training as well as the absolutely um brilliant training that i got at rape crisis 
to um, to this area of research. Wow, that's amazing. That sounds, you know, uh, that really sounds amazing. So I want to get to the research that you're talking about and what we're going to discuss in this episode, uh, which is about sexual misconduct in higher education. So to start, what does sexual misconduct mean? I mean, it's a term that we hear a lot, but what exactly does that mean? Yeah, so we have quite a precise definition of, of it in the 752 group. But actually, what's interesting is, particularly since the Me Too movement, we've seen this term sexual misconduct being used a lot more regularly, and it's got varying definitions. Right. Um, but the, re- the reason we use this term is the term sexual harassment doesn't actually get at all of the different behaviours that we want to think about in the university environment where there's a power difference so between staff and students or between staff and staff where there's, where there's a power imbalance. Mm. So, you know, examples might be grooming behaviours by staff towards students, so kind of blurring the boundaries, but in, in forms that, that doesn't actually constitute sexual harassment or, or might, might, might escalate towards sexual harassment, but, but hasn't necessarily done so right at the start. Or actually consensual relationships between staff and students or between people in different positions of power uh, that then break up and cause harm to uh, the student um, after the breakup. And so that's a form of, of harm that comes from a power difference that comes from um, um, sexual misconduct, but it's hard to fit into definitions of sexual harassment. And the other reason that we like to use uh, the term sexual misconduct is that it, it emphasises the idea that this is about professional misconduct. So it's not about right. the criminal justice system. This is about institutions. Um, and that could be any institution in society, you know, any organisation, employer. But in this case, we're talking about higher education institutions. Mm. And, you know, they actually can set their own standards of what is acceptable behaviour. And then they can decide to uphold and enforce these standards of behaviour. And so this is about what we think professional behaviour should look like for academic staff towards their students or, in fact, any other university staff. Right, right. So there's misconduct literally being the opposite of what professional conduct should be. And there is an element of sexual harassment or, you know, sexual violence to that. I mean, I'm making it sound really simplistic, but that's what I'm getting from um, yeah, so we see it as a kind of an umbrella term that can um, encompass all different types of harm that can come from, you know, power-based sexualized behaviours from yeah from people in a position of power in, in higher education. And I think there are important critiques of the term sexual misconduct. Some people have suggested that it minimises the behaviour; it takes away the word violent. Um, mm. And I do. I, I do kind of agree with those um, critiques. It, it kind of sanitizes the experience uh, to an extent. It's a word that kind of you can use and you can use in meetings and not offend anybody. Yeah. Um, and so I'm not quite sure how to resolve those, um, you know, those contradictions because that, you know, that's um, that's an important point that people make. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I I understand what you're saying, and it's really fascinating that. I, it's really fascinating that there's conversation around that. And I think that's really important that we ask these questions as well. But, you know, you've done a really important piece of uh, research with the seven, uh, 1752 group, the Silencing Student Study. And, you know, before I ask you about that, I want to ask you, what do we know about sexual misconduct by academic staff? And because we're going to be talking about higher education in the UK what do we know about that you know what is the extent of the problem do we know enough and yeah what do we know about it 
Yeah, well, what's interesting is that there really was very little research um, in the UK. There was a brilliant study done in 1995 um, about what they call sexual exploitation of staff towards students. And then until, uh, you know, there was there were a few a few people trying to do work and do some work in this area, but there was very little work done um, when we came to this problem as activists trying to find solutions and ways forward. Mm. Uh, so yeah, in the UK, we don't currently have a sense, a prevalence study. However, before um, I worked on the Silencing Student Study, we partnered with the National Union of Students, and we did a national survey of uh, students across the UK, and we got uh, just over eighteen hundred responses to that. Right, wow! And so it was. It, well, it's not a representative sample, but it does tell us something about what is going on um, in in the UK, and. Um, so we did find that there was, you know, about 40% of students were reporting kind of sexualized behaviors from staff. And for some of those, that was having a very serious impact. Um, and that was experienced as an abuse of power. And most people did not report that to their institution. Um, and those who did report had really negative, ex- well, nine, nine out of 10 people who reported had pretty somewhat negative or very negative experiences. So, yeah, so we, we don't know about prevalence in the UK, but we can get a sense from studies in the US and Australia where they have done much larger studies mm. of sexual violence in universities more generally. These studies suggest that, uh, which are the same as what we found, which is that um, female postgraduate students as well as LGBTQ postgraduate students are the most likely to be targeted um, mm. by staff for sexual misconduct. And so around about... 10% of all female postgraduate students will um, will experience, uh, will be subject to um, sexual misconduct of some form from staff. And then mm. undergraduates anywhere between about 3 and 7%. So, but this is a really consistent finding that it's, um, you know, male students absolutely do experience this and in higher numbers than you might think, but female students and LGBTQ students are the most likely to be targeted. So if you think about how many students that is in the UK, um, how many female postgraduate students there are in the UK at the moment, that is a lot of students. That is the ten, that is looking at tens of thousands of students who are likely to be targeted. Mm. So yeah, I think we can probably extrapolate, you know, extrapolate from those US and Australian studies and suggest that that's probably likely to be the case. A lot of people, you know, maybe just kind of see that as part of, you know, part of what they have to put up with. Um, or don't see it as uh, you know they might maybe minimize their experience but mm. yeah as I found out the, the reporting process is not easy and so it's not surprising that many people don't report. Mm, yeah I was going to say that you know that's a really big number of uh, people who came to answer that survey you know considering how you know the process of talking about incidents of sexual violence it's, it can be really hard for survivors and it can be really triggering and you know just to me that sounds like just shows that there's such a big population of survivors who you know aren't being addressed and who aren't getting the justice that they should be getting yeah I should say with the National Union of Students study that was sent to students all across the the UK from you know from all levels of study right and so the sample we got was as I said it wasn't representative but it was it was um you know there was an incentive for students to participate in the survey so we got, we, you know, we think we got a pretty good cross-section of, um, and that in most cases it matched the demographics of the UK population apart from a couple of points. So, you know, um, it, it wasn't, it was quite a good quality sample overall. What, what were the points that you think 
weren't addressed or matched? So we didn't get, we had very few responses from students with disabilities. Mm. And um, given that we know that students with disabilities um, or disabled students, I should say, are, or, you know, are also likely to be experiencing disability discrimination at university, or at least it's, it's you know, we, for, as far as I know, there's a lot of ways in which universities don't necessarily hold, uphold their um, obligations under the Equality Act. So that's a population that, you know, that's a kind of a group that we would like to engage with more and something we'd like to think about more. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And now I think coming to the study that uh, you did with the 1752 group, what is the 1752 group? And tell us about the silencing student study. Yeah, so um, the 1752 group um, is currently, um, there's three members currently, which is myself, Tiffany Page, who's at University College London, and Emma Chapman, who is at Imperial College London. And we were formed in 2016 building on the momentum of the activism that Tiffany and other um, Goldsmith students had um, had put into trying to make change at Goldsmiths after they had such a difficult time trying to make a complaint and trying to um, create a department that was free from sexual harassment. Hmm. And we called ourselves a 7052 group because um, we, I got involved when we were organising a conference about staff sexual misconduct in 2015 at Goldsmiths. And Goldsmiths did give us £1,752 towards this uh, conference, although that was from an existing budget, so it wasn't, it wasn't new money, it was from an existing quality diversity budget. But then the message was, right, we're not going to make any changes, we're not necessarily going to engage in detail in the discussions that you're having. And it was still really, really hard to get change. And there was, it was clear that there wasn't a commitment to putting more funding in at that point. So we, when we set out, we called ourselves the one, you know, 1752 group to remind ourselves that that amount of money, which, you know, it was okay for putting on a conference, but it was, it's really not okay to, you know, make systemic changes and to address what at the time was an entrenched culture of sexual misconduct by staff being acceptable and normalised. Um, so it's a reminder that sticking plaster solutions, short-term solutions are not enough and we need a kind of longer-term commitment to this issue. Mm. So really what we've been doing since 2016 when we formally set ourselves up is focusing on carrying out research in order to inform change so that we are doing um, evidence-based and research-informed practice and that we're hearing from the voices of survivors and complainants about their experiences and then what we're trying to do is focus on a national sector level. So working with national organisations such as Universities UK, mm. National Union of Students, um, the Office of the Independent Adjudicator of Higher Education, we've had conversations with who are the Ombuds Organisation for Complaints and other sector-wide bodies. Because the idea is if we can get the guidance changed nationally or if we can get incentives nationally for institutions to make change, then that's hopefully going to trickle down and build change at individual institutions. Mm. I mean, we also, we, you know, we also do do some work in our own individual institutions, and we have worked with other other universities. But it's a very daunting task to try and bring about change in this area. If you think about, um, you know, the number of universities and the complexity of all of them, so we've had to make some difficult decisions about the level on which we work. Um, we also, you know, we will, you know, we often get approached by people who need some advice and support because there's, there's not very much out there. And, um, mm. you know, we will kind of help people to the extent of our abilities. But we, yeah, we've, it's a struggle is that we would love to support people with um, 
with their cases going forward, but we don't really have the capacity to do that and to do the national lobbying work. So we have made a decision to try and make change at a national level and hope that that will make change in people's lives. Yeah. Wow. That's such an amazing story. I feel like that's the kind of, you know, the story of the t- names, the 1752 group. That's the kind of story that uh, you can make a movie about, you know, about <laughs> a really good oh, movie about. Good idea. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine like a really good feminist movie about, you know, activism and changing things. And yeah, I, I would watch that movie. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. We'll probably get in trouble for libel law. That's <laughs> one of the main sticking points we come across in this work. <laughs> I mean, maybe they can change the figure or something or they can, you know, find a way around that. Yeah. <laughs> So what 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 is this uh, silencing students study? Yeah, so following on from the National Union of Students study, which is called Power in the Academy, um, mm-hmm. and that's publicly available on our website if you're interested. Um, we and we knew from you know the experience of Tiffany and her colleagues, and of course um, Emma and a previous member of the group, Antonio, who also Antonio Bevan, who was a previous member of the group, had joined at this time, and you know many of us had experience of going through complaints processes and then we had the evidence from the Power and Academy study that showed that the the kind of really drawn out traumatizing ineffective pro- complaints process mm. that we'd seen people going through or that people had gone through themselves was not unique to Goldsmiths or to other institutions it was actually seemed to be a systemic problem so I led on a study uh, where there were two elements um, I did interviews with 16 uh, students or early career researchers who had attempted to report sexual misconduct by staff to the university. And I say attempted <laughs> for reasons I'll explain in a minute. And then um, I also worked with Rachel Rye, who uh, carried out some policy analysis of uh, policies from 25 different universities in the UK to see, um, you know, to see whether the policies were sufficient in themselves. Yeah, so the policy analysis looked at both consensual relationships policies between staff and students, and it looked at kind of bullying and harassment policies. Most institutions didn't at the time have sexual, specific sexual harassment policies. Hmm. Around the policy analysis, you know, the big, the two big takeaways were probably a huge difference across the sector. So across 25 institutions, there were some policies that were actually defining what they understood by consent in the policy, defining terms like exploited consent. Um, suggesting an awareness of the power imbalance and how that could be exploited. And then other institutions were had really problematic policies. Um, so some institutions had a line in their policy on consensual relationships between staff and students, which said that we rely on the integrity of both parties to ensure that abuses of power do not occur. And that's about a consensual relationship between a staff member who's in a position of power at their institution and a student who is not. Um, and the idea that the student is responsible for avoiding abuses of power that might be perpetrated against them mm. was just baffling to us. And as far as we know, that's still in at least one or two universities' policies in the UK. So there was a really wide cross-section um, and there wasn't any um, consistency of response. And I think that that variety, that patchiness, is really characteristic of how in the UK universities have responded. Um, to the issue of sexual misconduct and um, both student-to-student and and, um, staff-to-student. There's just such great variation. Um, And then in terms of the interviews, we looked at, um, you know, uh, people's experiences of um, misconduct and the experience of reporting. 
And yeah, so the, the forms of misconduct that people had experienced included abusive relationships, assault, rape, um, you know, sexual har- harassment. And also what came up quite strongly in about half of the accounts were um, what some people themselves referred to as grooming behaviours. So this might be behaviours that are just, you know, as simple as kind of inviting a student to go for coffee off campus, Mm. um, you know, contacting them, um, you know, on social media or following them on social media or or various different social media platforms. And so behaviours that are really totally innocuous in themselves, oh, well, um, you know, they they, um, seemed innocuous to students, but then they start to form a pattern of behaviour that students would experience as um, very uncomfortable um, and in one case, a student who was experiencing these boundary blurring behaviours tried to report this to her university because she felt like the staff member was kind of wanted, was kind of setting her up to have a romantic relationship with her, and she didn't like this dynamic, but she couldn't get out of it because he was you know, very influential in her academic career. Mm. Um, and she was unable to report this because he hadn't done anything that violated any policies. And, and then for other interviewees, this groovy behaviour escalated over time to become an abusive relationship or to become um, other forms of sexual violence. So I think that's something that, you know, we've been thinking about a lot. And Tiffany and I have got an article which will hopefully be coming out in the next few months where we explore some of the, the data from this report around grooming in more detail. And, yeah, so that was one of the really interesting um, and important points, I think, yeah. um, that grooming needs to be taken more seriously and people need to understand it better. Mm. And then I guess, you know, in terms of, um, you know, another important takeaway was that the impacts of experiencing these behaviours were very, very heavy um, for my interviewees. And this is an important point that I know a lot, a lot of sexual violence researchers have made, but I'll make it again. The, the supposed severity of the behaviours that people experienced didn't um, map on to any kind of predictable impacts. So somebody could experience you know, grooming behaviour that what didn't violate any policy and that didn't even constitute sexual harassment, but that could have a very severe impact on their ability to engage with their studies, on, you know, you know their kind of emotional responses to that. So the, severi- the supposed severity of behaviour doesn't equate to the severity of response. Mm. And I think what's, what I noticed really clearly is because of the power imbalance, and because in some cases it was um, the, the student's supervisor, so dissertation supervisor or postgraduate supervisor, who was engaging these behaviours, although in some cases it was a, a, a member of staff in their department who wasn't teaching them. Yeah, so the, the, the power imbalance and that relationship over time seemed to have a really, um, mean that the impacts of these behaviours were really um, very heavily felt by, um, by, by the interviewees in my study. Mm. And um, yeah, and I, and I, you know, I just wanted to say as well, you know, that you know, 16 women that a study, and it was all women who came forward, um, you know, shared with me these accounts that, you know, um, and it was a huge privilege, you know, to kind of be trusted with, with hearing these accounts from them. And um, especially, you know, people who, I'd, who hadn't met before, who I'd managed to recruit to be involved in the research. And um, that, was an, that was an amazing thing for all of these women to do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, listening to you talk about the impact that, you know, this abuse had on, on the survivors, I mean, it's, I'm a student myself and you know university is hard enough as it is and there's so much to navigate and you know in that space and you know especially you know the amount of influence that 
your educators can have and you know the, that dynamic it's so important to emphasize that the effects of this can be so detrimental and mm-hmm. specifically within that space so yeah i just wanted to reiterate that as well yeah yeah but what were the experiences of your interviews when they reported sexual misconduct so you know if they decided to go ahead and report with the university or the institution what experiences did they have with that reporting procedure um so uh it was a huge struggle for most of them to report um not surprisingly most people didn't report immediately or attempt to report um um and often because it took them a lot of time to make sense of what had happened to them yeah. um and all because they were in a position that it wasn't safe they felt it wasn't safe to report that person it wasn't safe for their career it, you know wasn't safe for their own physical safety um and the reason that i looked at people who attempted to report rather than actually people who reported is that six out of the 10 interviewees um couldn't get their report taken up as a formal complaint by their institution so they attempted to report but for some reason for various reasons um the university didn't take it up as an investigation so um you know one student was um not um she didn't really yeah the process seemed to be an informal process although she wasn't really told if it was formal or informal and she was just told it was her word against her supervisors so there was nothing they could do and one another student um experienced um sexual assault from her um, you know one of her main academic tutors a few months after she graduated uh and so she reported as an alumni something that happened as an alumni but it was somebody who she'd met you know who she knew as an as a kind of a academic relationship and mm-hmm. uh um, and so the university said in fact in this case they said they would take action and then they didn't take any action and didn't tell her about this whereas there are other cases that were you know even more uh stark where the where there wasn't any gray area about you know being an alumni or a graduate and the university actually just somehow failed to act and interviewees couldn't really understand why this had happened or what was going mm-hmm. on And I think often the narrative around this is that oh it's somebody very powerful as uh, the university protecting a powerful member of staff and I certainly did find some evidence of that but that wasn't the norm and what I found is that um the perpetrators of misconduct were from all different levels of seniority and from all different um kind of levels of of being kind of prized by the institution some of them you know interviewees described that the perpetrator was apparently quite crap at his job and not very senior they were all however mm-hmm. as far as i could tell permanent employees so they so i think it's maybe easier to get for um you know for university to take action against um precariously employed um people but yeah but this narrative of universities are protecting um kind of powerful uh members of staff that certainly does happen 100% but that's not the only story there's other stories going on as well mm. yeah and i just wanted to also say i suppose uh yeah people found it difficult to find somebody to who would t- take action on the report people didn't know what to do with the report um they didn't know what the process was and they didn't know what what um what needed to happen they didn't understand um the kind of confidentiality processes that were going to be required and so for example a student might report to somebody and get an initially really sympathetic reaction and feel really relieved that they've told somebody who understood mm. and then suddenly 
the response would shift and say that you know the person who they had initially reported to would, would wasn't allowed to talk to them about the case because it had moved into an investigation phase which has confidential restrictions mm. and and then they were in this kind of labyrinthine process um and and and, and you know weren't allowed to get weren't allowed to get support from where they had been previously getting it so it was a kind of a there's there was this something that we've talked about i've talked about in an article with my colleague Susan Oman about a passion of institutional listening while silencing. So the inst- mm. individual people in the institution were often, uh, not always, but you know, often reacted quite well to disclosures. Um, but then, could, but then, the, you know, the institutional um, response couldn't kind of maintain that um, that positive or sympathetic response. Mm. And I suppose I just wanted to say one more thing, which is about the reasons why students made the decision to complain because this kind of puts in it sheds light on why all of these issues that I'm raising are so important quite apart from you know that they're distressing for the student themselves but um, the most of the students and um, early career researchers who I spoke to were trying to report um, because they to protect others sometimes they were reporting on behalf of themselves and others to protect, um, and sometimes they were reporting because they knew there had been others who were targeted or they wanted to stop other people being targeted in the future. Um, mm. And sometimes they were reporting for their own, yeah, as I said, immediate physical safety um, or to protect their protect their careers going forward. And, you know, and this this suggests that what we're looking at, when we're looking at uh, staff sexual misconduct, it's often treated as an individual versus an individual. You know, one member of staff is a perpetrator and, and you know, one student or another staff member being targeted. And that's totally the wrong picture, as far as we can tell. Um, it's likely to be multiple other students and staff members who are targeted. And research from the US also suggests that um, in this context, most people who are targeting people for sexual misconduct will, yeah, will be serial perpetrators. So we need a massive shift in our understanding of, of what we're thinking about here to, to think about the risk being to, you know, uh, you know many students and other students and staff as well as whoever else um mm-hmm. um might be involved and 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 yeah at least um yeah rather than this kind of one one to one model of individualized um understandings of how sexual misconduct occurs mm, yeah this this reminds me of what uh, sarah emerd says about uh, polishing the institution about how uh, you know educational institutions and universities they'll uh, use reports published by academics who are you know talking about combating sexual violence and they'll show that as oh look we're doing so much to fix the problem but they'll ignore you know problems within their own reporting procedures or you know reports that point out that they're not doing enough to protect students and other staff members like you said. Yeah, and I should have said actually, uh, you know, Sarah Ahmed um, spoke at our initial conference in 2015, and then it was it was the following year, 2016, when she resigned from Goldsmiths, and you know, protesting their failure to do anything to address this issue. So, um, wow. Um, and then and then her work on complaint more recently has been just so influential uh, in making sense of people's experiences and. Uh, um, you know, some of my interviewees described how reading her work was a catalyst for them, re- you know, for them kind of realising what was going on in terms of trying to negotiate um, the institutional response. 
Mm. Um, so yeah, I think the way her, uh, you know, the way her work has resonated with people and and actually kind of impelled people to act and made sense of their situation, um, yeah, has been really really powerful. Yeah, I mean, as is, I mean, listening to you, I mean, I can, you know, it's so amazing listening to you talk about everything that you're doing and you know just creating that space for survivors to talk about their experience and you know something potentially being done. So thank you for that. But um, I mean, I want to move on and talk about uh, the policies that function as a barrier in reporting sexual misconduct in universities. So, you know, you've spoken about how there are problems within reporting procedures. But, you know, are there any specific policies that function as a barrier? Um, so I think the, the fact that the, the, you know, the policies across the institutions we looked at were so varied Mm-hmm. That shows the lack of attention in many, many institutions and across the sector to this issue. So in a sense, like, you know, policies are not necessarily going to be implemented as they as they are described. But at least if you've got a good policy, it suggests that somebody in the institution has actually thought about how they're going to respond to this issue and they've thought about the issues. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'd say, you know, what you might call institutional preparedness was definitely a factor in the responses that people had. Um, so, you know, how prepared is the institution to deal with this? And, um, you know, from the interviewees I spoke to, um, m- most of their institutions were very, very unprepared to deal with these kinds of complaints. So even if they did have a good policy, they didn't uh, appear to be able to kind of operationalise it. And issues mm-hmm. came up in, 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 in um, tackling these issues which were not dealt with in policies. And so for those who's, you know, so the, for the 10 interviewees whose complaints did get taken forward formally, the complaints process was long, it was drawn out, um, you know, we're talking years in some cases, several years, but, you know, several months was, you know, if you were lucky if it was six months, let's say. Um, and these processes were really emotionally traumatic. Hmm. Not only that, they were ultimately ineffective. Uh, so none of the interviewees felt that their institution had had dealt with this adequately, um, mm-hmm. even in the cases where there, where there was some form of redress or remedy offered to the student, which was four out of the 16 um, interviewees, even in those cases, they felt that their institution had not uh, dealt with it adequately. And most, in most of those cases, they really had to fight to get any, any remedy. So any kind of, um, you know, for example, one person got an extension to her PhD funding and the, and the time uh, limit on her PhD. Uh, somebody else got a fees refund, but those kinds of those kinds of remedies were very very difficult to get, and they didn't mm. um, they didn't actually address the issues that people wanted to be um, addressed. So yeah, I've actually been working on a mm. working on an article about um, this issue of remedy or redress for complainants mm. because actually what it seems happens is institutions get to the end of this process. And, um, you know, no matter what happens, you know, maybe they put some sanction, you know, if the complaint is upheld, they might put some sanctions on the staff member, you know, which is usually a letter of warning on his HR file. Uh, mm. And um, there's the student complainant doesn't get told what sanctions have been given um, uh, and doesn't really get told anything about the outcome. But there's no sense of, OK, what would justice look like for that student and what can the institution do to try and put things right? Um, so there's just a lack of redress or accountability across the sector, and that's both at the level of individual institutions, but also for um, interviewees whose where, where the complaints process 
didn't go well, which was, you know, all of them in this study. And, and you know, I have to admit that probably the people who wanted to be interviewed for the study had had a bad experience. So I'm sure there are people out there who've had a better experience who I didn't speak to. Um, mm. Yeah, when they when the complaints process didn't go well, there was very little opportunity for them to get support or redress elsewhere. So mm. if they um, wanted to take legal action, they had to find a way of funding that. And that's obviously really expensive because legal aid was cut back in 2012. Um, yeah. If they, uh, in theory, they should be able to go to the Office of the Independent Adjudicator of Higher Education, which, in, which is the Ombuds organisation in England, and there's similar organisations in Scotland and Northern Ireland. And um, to, in order to do that, though, they had to go through the full complaints process of their institution, which could be anything from, you know, say, an informal complaint, a formal complaint and an appeal. Um, so maybe three rounds of complaints processes, um, which could each of them could take, you know, six months. Some people literally just didn't have time on their visas if they're international students or they couldn't cope with the trauma of being told that they were wrong and being told that they weren't being believed. Um, yeah. through the kind of um, investigative reports that were coming out. And they didn't trust the institution, you know. So if you go through one round of complaints processes um, and, you know, say you've provided in one case 200 pages of evidence, you know, written evidence from emails and messages um, of evidence of, you know, sexualized messaging from your PhD supervisor, for example, and you're told, okay, sexual harassment didn't take place. There was inappropriate behavior, but not sexual harassment. That's not really going to give you any faith that going through a, an appeal or a review process is going to make any difference to that. So people lost faith in the process very, you know, very quickly and didn't see the point in continuing um, through further rounds of appeal. And I didn't think it would make any difference if they did. And I have to say they're probably right. You know, at some point you have to just, just decide to survive, decide that your own mm-hmm. health and survival is, is um it has got to be has got to be the priority rather than trying to push through you know months and months or years of a traumatizing um complaints process so yes that turned into a bit of a rant didn't it <laughs> there's a lot more i could say so i suppose yeah i should just say you know coming out of this research um at 1752 group we've worked with law firm McAllister Lavarius. Um, in particular, Georgina Comfort Lee there, and we've produced some guidance on how complaints processes should work for staff to student mm. uh, complaints. Yeah, and that came out in March, and we really thought through all the things that went wrong, both in our research and then um, in the legal cases that Georgina has taken forward against universities. And we've produced mm. guidance to how you know how we think that universities could do a better process. So hopefully, mm. something good will come out of all of this. Yeah. So I was going to ask you, you know, you've talked about how uh, we need more accountability for the institution and, you know, this report that you're talking about that came out in March. So what recommendations do you have for fixing this problem? It's a really big problem that is not, you know, it's not going to be a quick fix, but how, what are some of the steps that we can take for addressing staff sexual misconduct? Yeah, so there's a lot to be done, quite a daunting task. Uh, but, you know, we are starting to do um, work, across, you know, in sexual violence and higher education more generally, um, you know, over the last, you know, four years or so. And some institutions are doing some really progressive work. They are in the minority, but it's great to see that there's some emerging, you know, good practice. Um, but at the moment, as I said, it's very patchy and there's a lack of a joined up approach and there's a lack of regulation um, or, as I said, accountability. It's almost like regulation is a swear word. 
in UK higher mm. education, universities pride themselves on their autonomy. And that's a kind of historic thing where, where, where universities have been independent from the state and they've been able to take that critical position. And of course, that's really, really important. But there's got to be, you know, the buck's got to stop somewhere in terms of how they're supporting students um, and what behaviours are acceptable. Um, there is a kind of fairly adequate legal framework. Well, you know, the Equality Act is a very good legal framework, but the mechanisms for being able to implement it are very, very difficult. You know, so one thing that would make a big difference is if there was legal funding for students to and staff to, um, but particularly students, because National Union of Students doesn't have, uh, you know, doesn't have lawyers who students can consult. You know, legal funding for students to take legal cases against the university. Now, I recognise the dangers of moving towards a kind of litigious model where everybody's suing everybody. Mm. But, uh, you know, this, this is the one thing that does make universities sit up and take notice. Um, and, and I think that there's a lot that can be done in terms of clarifying case law. So clarifying exactly what universities' duties are, or at least what their baseline duties are. We want them to do more, but knowing what the minimum is that is expected. And that's currently not that clear. Um, in, in legal terms, mm. um, but just more generally, there's a lot of institutions who are, who want to go beyond the legal minimum, which is fantastic, and who have passionate people working on this issue in them. And so, I think you know, one thing that we need is much more knowledge and expertise in universities around sexual and gender-based violence, mm. um, and that's both in terms of prevention and in terms of institutional responses. So, you know, it's crucial to have specialist staff and they need to be in partnership, working in partnership with specialist sexual and gender-based violence organisations. You know, every university should have a partnership with its local rape crisis or survivors trust centre that has that, that, that kind of specialist knowledge, that survivor centre knowledge. So it's really crucial to work with survivor centred organisations so that survivors' voices are feeding into the processes. And within this, um, you know, doing more work around raising awareness of gender inequality and, um, and gender norms and how um, the kind of structures of power in higher education reinforce those gender norms and create structures where, um, you know, abuses of power by supervisors towards their students, for example, might not get noticed or might, see, might get normalised, as um, Anita Zandaram and Carolyn Jackson have described in their research. You know, it's actually, you know, sexual and gender-based violence in higher education is invisible because it's seen as normal uh, in many, uh, you know, in many of its manifestations. Mm. And then I suppose, um, you know, the, the, the process that we're working on a lot is complaints processes. Uh, and, you know, there's a question around how appropriate, is it ever going to be, a complaints processes ever going to be appropriate for issues that are about wider discrimination or inequality issues such as, you know, racism and racial harassment or sexual misconduct and so you know the direction I'm thinking about really is how can we link together you know these questions of wider issues of inequality and discrimination that are you know by um, definition not about individuals but then um, individual complaints processes are what's being used to address them um, so this question of you know how institutions should respond uh, to sexual violence complaints and reports, um, you know, and post Me Too, we're seeing institutions actually really being at the heart of um, the post Me Too response. So, you know, we've, I don't know, recently in the UK, there's been, um, um, you know, a senior politician in Scotland, Alex Salmond, um, the investigation into him has been in the news, um, and, you know, other political parties, 
you know, other organisations, the question of how, you know, kind of employers, um, education institutions and other organisations in society tackle sexual violence. And, and you know, what, what can we do differently post Me Too when we've got this momentum for change? That's really what I'm thinking and starting to think about. That's fascinating. And I mean, so important to explore all of that. But what I want to ask you, you know, right now, hearing you talk about what the work you've done and the work that you want to do, is doing this research emotionally draining? And, you know, how do you balance your emotional well-being with your work, you know, especially when you're hands-on talking to survivors and you're, you know, looking at these procedures that can very easily be made different but you know just the the inertia around it is any of this emotionally draining yeah definitely um and I think one way in which I'm really lucky is that I'm working with an activist group the Zimbabwe two group and you know uh you know we probably don't do as well as we should in terms of emotionally supporting each other but we you know we do try to and we know that I know that I'm not alone in, in trying to do this. I think if I was trying to do this work, um, you know, as a, as, a, as an activist and as a researcher on my own, you know, without, without a group, I very much doubt I would be doing it. I wouldn't have the confidence. I wouldn't have the, the guts. Mm. And so it makes a huge difference to know that you're not the only one who's thinking, hold on, this is really not okay. And, and you know, and then when issues come up, um, you know, in, in the activism and the research, you know, we can talk them through and decide on decide on what you know what we think about this. But I suppose also I'm really keen on talking about researcher well-being. When I was volunteering with Rape Crisis, we had such an amazing um, you know mechanisms for support for for volunteers and workers. And then moving to academia, I'm really horrified by how little emotional support there is for for researchers. So when I was doing the silencing students interviews, I um, used, you know, I, I was luck, lucky enough to have some funding from the Higher Education Funding Council for England, and and so I spent a little bit of that on getting some counselling while I was doing the interviews, um, mm-hmm. because uh, you know to think about how I was carrying the accounts that I'd heard, and I think that's also really important as a researcher, you know, when doing your analysis to be, you know, to kind of have some way of processing the emotional material that you're bringing to that to that data yeah so I suppose those are the two main things that I do but um yeah I like to think of I like to think of being part of a wider movement you know beyond just our group but you know a wider movement of activists and researchers who are all working towards similar ends and that's you know that's the thought that I find really helpful and keeping me going wow thank you for sharing that and yeah I I agree it's very empowering to see other people doing you know the kind of work that is so important and you know yeah I, I I also I also benefit from that so what is one practical thing that listeners can do to tackle sexual violence you know and it doesn't have to be related to what we just discussed but really you know anyone listening what can they do to tackle sexual violence on their level yeah, well, I suppose, you know, I'll answer in the context of higher education, but this could apply to any organisation, you know, any, you know, a school or your workplace or wherever else. Um, ask people, you know, managers, people in positions of authority, ask them what they're doing to support survivors in your organisation and to address sexual violence within the organisation. 
Um, so if you're a student, you know, start a group, lobby your university, work with your students' union, join a network. But, you know, actually just asking, asking a question of somebody in a position of power and that starts to put it on their agenda. And if enough people do that, hopefully we'll remember it. So, you know, parents can ask questions at open days. What's this university doing to um, keep students, um, you know, to, to, to prevent and respond to sexual violence? If you're a staff member, you can demand that your university provide specialist face to face training um, or ask, you know, your vice chancellor what they're doing. And also how they're supporting staff survivors, because staff survivors get forgotten in this conversation. Uh, yeah, and so, you know, thinking about staff survivors supporting students and not getting supported themselves. So, yeah, just keeping it on the agenda and asking the difficult questions. Mm, wow, that's really, that's really amazing. And, you know, something really actionable, but at the same time, really important and something that can be transformative because institutions do listen to their clients in a sense and students and and you know parents especially are the clients of universities in mm-hmm. increasingly neoliberal space right i mean so yeah that's really really valuable and i hope everyone listening does that but thank you so much anna thank you for talking to me and thank you for you know doing this really difficult but really valuable work and um i'm going to be sharing links of your study that we spoke about and the 1752 group in the episode description so i hope everyone clicks on those but thank you for talking to me it's been a great pleasure thank you so much for having me on the podcast thank you